0: Welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show, the podcast where we engage in insightful conversations that inspire meaningful connections. I'm your host, Anthony Bradley, and today we have a special guest joining us, Mr. David Morris. David Morris is a devoted father of four and brings a wealth of experience to our discussion today with a background in vocational ministry and currently serving as president and COO of a company in the energy sector. Today David invites us to a thought-provoking Twitter thread he recently shared, titled The 8 Fights Worth Having With Your Kids. This captivating thread has caught the attention of tens of thousands of parents worldwide, providing valuable insights on building strong connections with our children. So whether you're a seasoned parent or just starting out on your parenting journey, join us as we embark on a thought-provoking discussion prepare to be inspired, challenged, and equipped with practical wisdom to forge meaningful connections with your children from a fresh perspective on parenting and the eight fights worth having with your kids on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. David Morris, good to have you on The Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you for joining me
1: today. I am super happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Anthony.
0: So I was really struck one day. I was on Twitter and my feed had this one really provocative discussion about things that parents should take a stand on and things that are worth fighting for. It's blowing up, right? Everyone started talking about it. And then I look and lo and behold, it's this guy named David Morris. And I'm thinking, there's no way to say David Morris. I've known for a number of years. So I look and I clicked and there was your picture. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this guy, is now more famous than me. I think at the time, you had about 20-something thousand followers. And then I look today, it's like 77,000 followers. I'm thinking, how is this guy more famous and more (laughs) successful on Twitter than I am? So there's a little jealousy there. What we're going to talk about today is this particular thread that you had has about 96,000 engagements. And I thought, Wow, that that really that really struck sort of a chord. People, people really, really enjoyed having this discussion. If you sort of listed these eight things that it's worth parents sort of fighting for. And you're coming at this because you are the perfect dad, right? And you and your wife have this all <laughs> figured out. Is that how you came to these eight things?
1: Yes, yes. I'm here to proclaim that and plant my flag on that. No, obviously. The way that I think about being a parent is if you think about the old kind of movie scene that still happens now where there's like there's a bomb, somebody's gotta disarm it, they don't know what they're doing, you're gonna clip this wire or that wire, you're not sure which wire to clip, and there's serious consequences if you clip the wrong one. And I think being a parent is like that. I mean, intrinsically, you know that this is high stakes, like the highest of stakes. You are shaping someone else's life. But you don't have any idea where you're going, what you're doing, if you're doing the right things, if they're working. Certainly the feedback that you're most often going to get from your kids is you're a bad parent. This isn't working. I hate this. Sometimes I hate you, right? So, so you're just kind of bumping along, trying to figure out, what you're doing and you know i've got a 14 year old daughter like i'm still diffusing bombs on a regular basis and and sometimes very often clipping the wrong wire but what started to happen a few years ago is that i started to reach what i would just kind of describe as like the validation point so my oldest child turned 18 went to college. My next oldest child was beginning to demonstrate these qualities and characteristics that I was both incredibly proud of, but also genuinely admired. Seeing things in my kids that challenged me to grow up in certain areas or to be willing to take risks that they were willing to take that I wasn't willing to take. And so I sort of had this moment where I began to see oh, okay, some of these things, they did work, they did matter. And so that really was what kind of inspired me just generally speaking to write on Twitter and then write specifically about my experiences as a parent is not because I have anything figured out, but at the same time, I now have two decades of doing it. And I can start to see what you planted 15 years ago or 10 years ago, begin to take shape and bear some fruit. And I just think, you know, when you're a young parent, you desperately need somebody to say, hey, of all the things out there that you can worry about or be concerned about with your kids, here's a few, at least from one person's experience that are worth putting some time and energy into. And that's what I've wanted to share with people on both sides, things that somehow we did well, And then also, too, I want to be honest and vulnerable about the failure along the way and, most importantly, encourage parents towards a real path of humility with their kids, knowing that there is going to be a lot of failure on the way. There are going to be stands that you take that were the wrong stand. There are going to be times where you clipped the wrong wire and things blew up and the beautiful part of being a parent is that if you'll go to your kids in relationship, they will receive you in your humility. And then there can be great repair. And then there's great depth that comes out of that. So not an expert, just someone who's trying to figure it out and be thoughtful about it. And then hopefully encourage other people with the same desire just to be engaged and thoughtful about what they're doing as a parent.
0: So the very first thing that you have here is the reading fight. You say that it's it's worth doing this. And you say, make your kids read. Of my four kids, one was a natural reader who always had a book uh, in his hands. For others, it was a fight. But it is a fight worth picking because reading is tied to everything from cognitive development to the ability to focus. Tell us more about why reading is such a good fight to, to have with your kids. Well,
1: man, you know certainly in the context that we live in, reading is sort of the last option on a long list of things that kids can do to pass time, to learn, to engage. And like I said in that, I have four kids, one of whom loved to read and would always read and wouldn't stop reading. So it wasn't a big deal with him. But the other three were on some kind of spectrum from I like reading okay and I do it sometimes to I don't ever want to read. And what concerns me for myself and for all of us, but especially for our kids, is the increasing inability to sit still, to focus, to process information, to discern, to learn. And all of those things happen in the course of reading. And then the the other piece of that that I included in there is that my wife, over the last seven or eight years, has become her vocation now is helping kids prepare for primarily the ACT. So she works with students, a full range from people who are just trying to get a score good enough to get into some basic colleges that are struggling to kids that have really high sort of Ivy League aspirations and need to get from a 31 to a 35 to be considered for that. So there's a full range there. But I just found it really interesting. One of her observations was in the reading section of that. You can teach people tips and tricks for the math section. You can teach people tips and tricks for the science section. You can teach people tips and tricks for, I think there's, I can't remember what they call it, but it's basically like a grammar section. But there's this reading comprehension section in there. And she just kind of learned over the course of time that that was one you couldn't really help people with that they either had grown up as readers or they hadn't. And it was really obvious in their ability to sit down and read through and process information, certainly to process information critically and for obvious reasons in and of itself. That skill is one that is increasingly valuable in our world where there's a tremendous amount of not just information coming at you, but conflicting information, and even at times false or intentionally misleading information. And so that ability to read, to discern for yourself, to think critically, to question the text, those are skills that we're very well served to help our children develop. And the easiest way to do that is to make them sit down with a book and read. Yeah,
0: I mean, the data is pretty clear on on the importance of that. And I think I can say this as a college professor, the ability to read and comprehend really makes or breaks a grade point average. I mean, what a lot of us are seeing in, in higher education right now is that we're having to do a lot of remedial work just teaching college students how to read a book. They don't know how. And because of that, they can't write well. If you can't read well, you can't write well. If you can't write well, you're not going to thrive in this world at all. And I would also say, tell me if you think this is true, I think if you can't read well, you're easily going to be taken advantage of.
1: That's part of my point about being able to learn how to think critically and discern uh, the information that you're reading, to question as you get older and are reading at a higher level. You're beginning to be asked to challenge what's being posited in whatever it is you're reading. So, that skill in and of itself, just that sort of mental model for I read things and I think critically about them and I question their veracity. And then I ask this question of, like, do I agree with that? What does that mean for me? Right? These are all things that are incredibly important. Plus, to your point about reading and the writing connection, this is also, I think, really important for developing just the vocabulary of expression so to be able to express what's happening in your emotional life in a way that can engage someone to genuinely care for you or to have creative expression in other forms whether that's writing or or even other artistic expressions i mean the ability to play music and read music this is all predicated on the ability to sit down with a book and focus and read and interpret And even just things that I'm not an expert in and couldn't speak intelligently to, but I know are happening on a brain level, just that ability to make connections and process through a piece of information. I just think it's incredibly valuable. But the whole premise of this thing that I wrote was just, man, there's a million things you can kind of take a stand on as a parent. It's hard to know which ones are important. And the first one, because your kids, will kick and complain and push back and say no and fight it and all this kind of stuff. So so the very first one, as I just thought about in terms of level of importance for navigating through life, certainly in the world that we're in today, is to be willing to stand your ground on you're going to read. like That's something you're going to do in our home.
0: Now, was it something that you and your wife modeled? Did they see you all reading? Was it sort of do as I say, not as I do sort of thing? Or were you all readers as well?
1: Well, I think I think for me, I had this trajectory where I read a lot as a kid and loved reading, and then as happens for many people, uh, you're sort of high school and then college, and then for me, graduate school, academic career almost beats the love of reading out of you that's there because there's such a volume of reading. Uh, you're reading a bunch of stuff that is either overly technical that you can't connect with or is topically something that doesn't really mean anything to you. And so there's there's a lot of what I would call sort of like rote reading that happens. And so, so for me, uh, my wife is a little bit more, she's much more of an academic than I am. She loves learning just for the sake of learning, like learning is an end, not a means to her. So I think for her, for sure, reading was definitely a part of her life. It took me really until sort of my mid thirties to get more serious about having a reading discipline in my life. And that mostly came from this other reason to make your kids read is that I started noticing there were two or three things that were common with all of the people that I admired who mentored me, or who were leaders that I worked under, that I learned a ton from, that I really wanted to model myself after. And one of those two or three things was, they were all readers. So for me, I had a certain amount of awareness that generally speaking, I'm kind of an ambitious person. I want to accomplish a lot of things and that, that I probably was going to be limited if I did not become myself a reader. So I had to take my own medicine here and make myself read and learn how to begin to cultivate and develop that habit as an adult.
0: So sitting your kids down to force them, maybe not force them, but encourage them to set them up to become readers is really worth it. The second one here just reminded me of my own childhood, because in the summers, especially, there was no such thing as being in the house. We, we both grew up sort of pre-tablets and, and multiple screens around the home, things like that. And when I was growing up, it was like, all right, get up, get breakfast. Get outside. And if you came inside during certain parts of the day, they're like, what are you doing in here? Maybe Mm -hmm. for lunch, but (laughs) eat lunch. You got to go. You got to go back outside. So Mm -hmm. the second one here, you say the outside fight. Make your kids go outside. The, The natural world teaches us things, valuable truths. There's a way things work that I must adapt because I won't because it won't adapt to me there are things I have no control over. You've got four kids. Why did this stand out as something that was important to you?
1: Again, it's all multi-layered. So threaded through all of these things is going to be the tension that every parent is feeling today of technology, screens, the allure of social media for kids, even just the prevalence of The Disney Plus, the Netflixes of the world, right? Just the amount of content that's available to just sit and consume. And I'm sure I can't say every, but I would just say like every thoughtful parent that I know who's trying at all to provide some kind of balance to their kids is wrestling with this. How much technology do I allow my child to consume? How much television do I let them watch? All of that stuff. And similar to you, I grew up in a world where if I wanted to change the channel, I got up off the couch, I walked across the room, I've flipped the physical knob to one of the f- five, I think, channels that we had. We were not a cable family. So I just didn't live in that world and instead spent a lot more time outside because it was that or sit inside. And my mom was good at like, hey, I'll just put you to work around the house. So getting outside, riding my bike, being in the natural world was just part of the way things worked. And so I think as a parent, The value that I see in nature and being outside is obviously multifaceted. So there is just like the, the health effects of physical activity, stimulation from sunlight. But the main thing that I think is missing from our world that you get outside is like the magic and the wonder of what's taking place. Like, do you remember as a child being fascinated with simple things like raindrops and this bug i was born in houston and i think it was 1981 1982 i can't remember the exact year but people that are long-term houstonians remember it because we had an ice storm in houston and i have this very vivid memory of being probably five years old and going outside and seeing this glaze of ice over the sidewalk, and being just captivated by it. Like, I was fascinated, like, what is this? And so I think the thing that I grieve so much for all of us is that that sense of wonder, that sense of being sort of caught off guard, or surprised by something that is delightful, has sort of exited from our world. And the net effect of that has been a lot of heaviness, a lot of depression, a lot of darkness, you know? And so I I think trying to cultivate in your kids that outside in the world that exists out of the home is where all those things reside. And it must be experienced. The other beauty of nature to me is that nature reveals itself slowly. So we've all had this experience. You go sit outside, you don't see the bugs, you don't see the leaves blowing in the trees. The longer you sit there, the more you see, right? And so that sense of progressive revelation that happens outside, I just think is really beautiful and it's really good for our souls to understand the concept that there are things in life in which we must sit and be patient and experience and let them come to us things that we don't manipulate control turn on press a button command any of those things so that's part of what's been so important to me about getting kids outside
0: as you were telling that story there i was i was thinking about my own experience with a caterpillar i remember it like very vividly right like discovering caterpillars and watching them eat leaves and so i I had a caterpillar we had this abandoned fish tank, and I put it in there, and I watched the whole process right of it becoming a, a cocoon and then a, a butterfly, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is fantastic, but I, I had to be outside, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I had to That's be outside right. to catch the caterpillar and I, I remember distinctly that I was at first I tried to feed it cheese because I thought everybody eats cheese, so I tried to feed the caterpillar cheese, and then I figured out, oh, they eat leaves so that was part of my. Yeah. <laughs> as part of my discovery process, but, but you know, yeah. I, you know, like you said, I had to wait. I had to wait on this thing to become a butterfly, and it, it did. It did teach exactly what you said.
1: Well, and there's so this is relatively recent. I don't know, a month or so ago, I got a really precious text message from my son, who's a freshman in college, who was laying awake at night, couldn't sleep, and and for whatever reason, was reflecting on growing up in our home as my son. And I won't share all of it. I've said to several people it was too beautiful to share publicly but one of the things that he said was thank you for for nurturing a, a sense of adventure right for taking us to do things for getting us out because the other thing is that all these things have these ripple effects so my boys in particular and I I think that risk in particular is incredibly essential to the masculine heart like men need to be risking and one of the easiest ways to risk is to climb up the side of a rock, right? My boys and I had some harrowing adventures where they're five and six and trying to climb up, which for you or me would be something pretty easy, but they're reaching and they're grabbing and they're afraid. And I'm also, so good for me as a parent, I'm having to stand back and resist my urge to jump in and rescue them and instead say, you can do it put your foot here, reach your hand there. And so you carry that forward in life. And now my kids are in college and and you know what I'm still having to practice is resisting the urge to reach in and grab them and pull them off and instead say, put your hand there. You can do it. Reach up. You got it. And what forms in them is that when they would get up to the top of whatever it was, there was this overwhelming sense of, confidence and accomplishment and pride that formed in their hearts. And so I could go on and on about the value of of getting your kids outside. And also just as an encouragement, the value of getting outside with them. So young parents talk about dreams for their kids. Old parents talk about regrets with their kids. And as a pushing being an old parent 20 years of doing this that's one thing i wish I, I i did some but i would i wish i would have done more right is saying come along with me or let me come along with you but engaging with them outside
0: that's really really rich i think this next one here i also found particularly interesting i think that some parents think they're doing their kids a favor by not letting them work sometimes I've heard it phrased this way. I don't want them to have to do what I did, right? I, w- I, w- I want them to have it easier. So I want to remove some of those obstacles. But in fact, you say that work is worth fighting for to put your kids in a position where they have to work. It's the work fight. You said, make your kids work. I'm saddened by how many parents don't require their kids to lift a finger at home. You said that your mom used to say, You don't get the benefits of being in the family without taking your share of the responsibilities. Why did that one in particular stand out to you as well as you sort of parented your own kids?
1: Man, that's a great one from my mom, isn't it? I mean, I have carried that with me for the entirety of my life, and that has shaped something in me, this uh, communal understanding. You know, there's this temptation in all of us because we tend to be pretty self-focused to take from people from institutions from whatever without contributing anything back right that we want the benefits without any of the responsibilities that go with that and that's something that is ultimately destructive like it's relationally destructive it damages the family it damages the church it damages all all of our institutions when we become focused on i'm just going to take without expecting anything to be required in return. And so one of the simple ways that you can do that as your kids are growing up is to expect them the same way that my mom did, expect them to be a contributor to the life of the family. And this is one in particular, Anthony, that I would call this a trap that well-meaning parents fall into. You kind of described it before, like I can't remember if I mentioned that in this in this one or something else that I wrote, but I grew up with someone who through high school and I believe through college, his mom would come out every night and lay out his outfit for the next day. So he was into adulthood before he had to pick out his own clothes and i know that his mother and i know that she was well meaning in doing that but that wasn't what was truly best for him and for his maturity and for his development and and the same thing sort of happens with things around the house i think the reason my parents give up on this is for one of two things one it makes them feel good to do the things around the house even if they whine and complain about I'm the only one who does stuff so there's a certain level of identity in doing all this stuff around the house for your kids and then the the second reason is because kind of the hassle it is most kids by nature don't want to do stuff around the house right so there's a, a certain level of hassle where it's just easier to do it yourself and one of the most sort of horrifying questions to ask as a parent is of all the things that i'm doing in parenting How much of it is for my child's good and how much of it is actually for me? And that's a very penetrating, I say it's kind of a horrifying question because, uh, you know, in the old like CSI shows, they go in the room and it looked normal and then they turn on like the black light, you know, and then you see all like the blood splatter everywhere. It's like, oh my gosh. And that's kind of one of those black light questions that once you start asking that question, you start realizing man, I'm not making my kid work in the house because either it makes me feel good to do all the stuff and this is part of my identity, or I don't want to have to hassle with getting them to do it. It's just easier for me to do that. And so every parent wants to be motivated by love and wants to do the things that genuinely are in the best interests of their children. And so, so teaching them how to work, giving them responsibilities, is really helpful. And it's also genuinely practical. The first parental payoff message that I got from a child was when my oldest daughter went to college a little over two years ago. And her first weekend sends me a text and says, thank you for making me do my own laundry. I'm in the dorm laundry room. And there are four other girls in here on the phone with their mother trying to figure out how to do laundry. They're doing it for the first time. So thank you that I'm not in that spot. So there's also just this this practical component of, I think about everything kind of in the big picture component, which is I want to teach my kids the principle of you're going to contribute to things that you're reaping the benefits of. And then on a smaller scale, you are literally equipping them for very real things that they're going to have to do in life.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a a real advantage to knowing that you're doing this. Not because it's it needs to be get done, but you're also contributing to the flourishing of other people, and and I've I've really been and this is somewhat controversial, but I I don't think parents should be paying their children to do like quote unquote chores. What that does, and this is something I got from Madeline Levine, which is someone you you put me on a long time ago. I mean, she sort of is is really against this, this idea that, that you would actually pay a child because it teaches them that the only reason to help someone is for money. Yeah. Right. Not because you love them, not because you want somebody else to flourish, but you know, you should be giving them $20 to do the dishes. They should be, they should be doing the dishes because they love helping the family work. They want to be participant in the family working.
1: Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have been in that camp of don't pay your kids to help with things around the house. That shifted a little bit when my kids got to driving age and they were hard up for gas money because I I'd, I'd make them pay for their own gas, pay for their own insurance, and they'd be hard up for cash all the time. And so I started to loosen on that a little bit to say, hey, if you'll mow the yard this weekend, I'll buy you a tank of gas or, you know, so there was a little bit that shifted over time. But I, I think when you're saying that it just reminded me of I had an employee one time who was always late for work. And I was just a constant frustration. And I finally sat him down and said, Look, man, this is a problem. And you're either going to fix it, or you're going to lose your job. And so kind of got his attention. And so for like a week, he started showing up on time. And then he came into my office one morning, and he was like, Have you noticed, I've been on time every day and I just looked at him and I said, man, I'm not going to congratulate you for meeting the most basic expectation of a job. Okay, I'm I'm going to congratulate you for going above and beyond and doing something that actually matters. But like this wasn't a big pat on the back situation. This was like fix it or else. And so I think kind of similarly, my baseline expectation is You're going to have things in our home that you're responsible for, that you're contributing to. And sure, there might be some times when I'm asking you to go above and beyond. And I do like the concept of working to earn something. And so we have kind of sparingly over the course of time allowed that, but never for what I would put in the category of kind of daily or weekly responsibilities, like doing the dishes or vacuuming or doing your laundry or things like that. Those were just part of, being in our family. So I've had that. I know that tends to be a little bit of a controversial position, but not to me. It's just always made sense for that. I think the other thing too, just briefly, all of these things are also, and I think the work one especially is this opportunity to nurture your child's heart and slowly but subtly speak something into them, right? So I heard someone speak and I wish I could credit them for it, but they told this story of, coming home with their kids and the trash needed to be taken out. And the dad asked one of his kids to take the trash out. And the kid said, no. And he said, oh, man, I will give someone else, one of your siblings, the joy of serving our family. And took it away, right? And I thought that's actually kind of a beautiful thing to communicate Right. You just missed out on this chance to do something that would have been a loving act for the family. Right. And so that always stuck with me. So you also have this opportunity as your kids resist or grumble or complain or do a halfway job or things like that to come alongside them and say, like, I I started doing this with one of my kids. Uh, They would come and say, okay, my room's clean. And I would ask them, okay, I'm happy to come look at it. But before I do, I just want to ask you this question. Do you feel like the condition your room is in right now represents the very best that you can offer? And then they would, run back upstairs and come back 10 minutes later. Right. But again, I would just, it's a chance to just speak into their heart to say, I'd rather do that than come in and say, this is bad, you know, be condemning. I never wanted to do that. So I just wanted to nurture in them this sense of like, when I do something, I do it to the best that I can. It represents me and it represents the effort that I put in and it represents my character. And so the home is like this training ground for the rest of life and it's meant to be it's not always functioning this way but it's meant to be sort of this safe space training wheels riding your bike for regular life and so i I think part of that that's really important is the making your kids work having them contribute and then also speaking into and nurturing their hearts as they go through the ups and downs of, I don't want to do it or I'll do it halfway or that kind of happens in that process.
0: Yeah, and it helps them also, like I said a few moments ago, be other-centered. That, I mean, this has implications for later on in, in their life, and their own marriages. Mm-hmm. And even before that, especially if they're sort of college-bound or roommate-bound people, as a college professor, the number one issue that leads to college students having problems in their dorm room is cleanliness. Mm -hmm. And essentially I would tell students, I would say this in class, you can tell which students had parents who served as their maid, and you can tell which students had parents who did what what you said. Because the ones whose parents actually had them work and contribute, they do the dishes. They clean up behind themselves. They don't leave their socks and underwear and clothes everywhere. They, they make sure the place is clean. And that facilitates a very pleasant roommate situation. When that doesn't happen, it's an absolute disaster. And I've seen this year after year after year where roommates will almost come to fisticuffs over the kitchen <laughs> and the bathroom and yep. junk around the place. And I'm like, that's home training.
1: Yeah. Well, again, if I could just add, because you sparked one other thing, you've seen this working with students. I had years where about a 10-year period where I did vocational student ministry, saw this, and then of course have been engaged with my own kids and their friends as they've been in middle school and high school. And one of the most destructive things for a child is to grow up in a chaotic home. And one of the signs of a chaotic home is a a lack of sort of regular habits of cleaning and putting things in order right and so now there are people that obviously can go too far with that and live in these overly sanitized homes that have to be perfect i'm not suggesting that but i'm i'm just saying that these habits of every saturday in my house still today i have a section of house cleaning that i do my wife has a section that she does my kids have things that they do and it'd be way easier to pay somebody to do it. And I could do that someday. I will. And, and I grumble about doing it sometimes. But those habits of bringing order to the home also have this sort of spillover effect and just sort of the sense that your children have of that home is a safe place. Home is not a chaotic place. So I think there's a tremendous amount of value in that.
0: This next item here is about families eating together. You call it the, the meal fight. You say make your kids eat as a family. There are studies that outline all sorts of, of benefits from regular family meal time. These benefits range from a lower risk of depression and to a decreased drug use. And that's exactly right. I mean, there's so many positive benefits, and I think, I think, and I, I want you to speak to this directly. Two things: one, why do you think this is important? But then, secondly, also, if you can, sort of address the challenges of being so busy. I think. I think that parents, you know, they've got four soccer games. They've got ballet, you know, dads coming home. There's just so much chaos in our lives. How have you had to, you guys have worked through this. I mean, you had a son who's a football player. He played for many, many years. Your kids are very active. You and Your wife are active. That tends to be part of the challenge with with family time eating together. It's just our our busyness. So kind of address that one. Why did this stand out? But then secondly, how would you encourage parents to think about the, the busyness problem?
1: Part of the reason why this stands out is because of some of those things. I've I've read tremendous amount of stuff that basically says, like, if you want to make one significant impact on your child's life, especially through their sort of middle school and high school years, that discipline of eating, sitting down to eat together as a family is, I know we'll talk about that in a second, address the challenges associated with it. But like, from a simplicity perspective, there you go, sit down and eat meals together And even if you can't do it seven nights a week, if you can do it three or four nights a week, but this kind of habitual process of connecting, and that's what it is. It's a habitual process, a daily process of pausing and connecting. And sure, sometimes dinner time together as a family isn't meaningful. There isn't any connection that happens. People fight. I mean, there's all sorts of chaos that's happened. But there are also these times where there are these rich conversations and there's great laughter. Like one of the things I so love about my wife is that she loves to laugh. And so at the dinner table, like we laugh and when my kids were little, they would crack us up and still, you know, as they got older, uh, the jokes got more inappropriate, especially between the boys. So sometimes we had to say, okay, okay, not at the table. But, you know, there's just this sort of subtle connection that happens. And all of us would say some version of there's nothing more important than family and then go on to live like everything is more important than family. And I'm not above that. Right. So this has just been an anchoring point for us. And I also, again, back to some of the years that were formative for me working with other people's children, was amazed at how few people ever sit down and have a meal together how many kids are sort of on their own for dinner or everybody sits down and eats dinner but they're watching tv the whole time or things like that and i never wanted that i wanted there to be a pause where we stopped and looked at each other across the table And, you know, one of the things that, one of the analogies that I use for a lot of different things in life is that I I really enjoy working out, lifting weights. And every so often, I just have this amazing workout where I feel strong, I feel fit, I'm having fun, I'm energized by it. And that happens not very often, once every couple of months. But I never get that if I'm not willing to put up with all the day's that I show up and I feel like crap and I still do it, or I feel okay, not great, it's not amazing, but I still do it. I have to be willing to do all of those days so that I can have this day. And you don't get one without the other. And so I I think something as simple as eating dinner together, man, you, you have some really rich times that happen around that table. It's not gonna happen every time, but the cumulative effect like you're guaranteed that it will that nothing good will ever happen if you don't develop the habit. But it is, I mean to your point, it's very difficult to do. I have benefited a little bit from just what I would call how God made me. So I am I am not somebody who can just go 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 nonstop 20 hours a day, sleep 4 hours a night. So just personally, the way that I'm created is that I can work really hard, get a lot accomplished, but I have to have downtime. I have to have recharge time. And so I've been a pretty staunch defender of that in our family. And so we've had to set up some parameters. So like as our kids were growing up, nobody could play more than one sport at a time. It was one season at a time. So that helped limit how much evening activity that we had. If our kids had something going on that evening in an evening time, then we would essentially say, but you gotta be home for dinner. So we would adjust as a family and eat dinner before that, or sometimes maybe eat dinner after that. But it became and still is a piece of our life that we sort of build around and schedule around and protect. And if you don't do that, there is so much going on that it's almost impossible to protect it. So it, it has to be, it has to be a conviction. It really does have to be a conviction that you are willing to say, we're not going to do this to preserve this. But my point there is that and why it made this list is because it's a stand worth taking, right? It's a stand worth taking. And I think all of my children would tell you that family mealtime has been a precious thing to them that they miss the two that have left home that they miss when they come home. That's what they want to do, right? They want to sit around the kitchen table and have a meal together as a family.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, so many families have to make that trade-off. I mean, you used to work conviction. eviction. It is a trade-off because there's so much pressure, particularly in middle-class and upper-class context, that you don't want your kids to miss out on all these opportunities. So... One sport at a time. Yeah. But then what about this and this and this and this? And if I, if they don't do eight things, right? I, I often joke that in America, the pressure that we put on families is that your, your children need to speak seven languages by the time they're seven, start four nonprofits by the time they're, they're in, in eighth grade and have traveled the world by the time they're juniors in high school or. If they don't do those things, there'll be failures in life, right? I think what you're saying, and and the data bears this out, is that they'll be better humans in the long term. (laughs) You're You're playing the long game. They'll be better and more adjusted humans just by spending that time together. The fifth point here is about boredom. And you make the case that boredom is worth fighting for. You say that you should make your kids live with boredom. Kids need unscheduled time. And, as odd as it sounds, boredom is a skill. I think much of the movement today toward mindfulness, stillness, and meditation is a desire to develop the ability to be bored. That is a major, major fight. Sometimes kids will walk up to their parents and say, Mom, Dad, I'm bored. Uh, How have you incorporated this as something worthy to fight for with your children?
1: Yeah, this is one that always makes me smile because I honestly think uh, of all the things, this is one of the hardest ones for parents because your kids will be relentlessly asking to be entertained. And I think that's kind of been the case for a long time and only ramped up in a world where entertainment is so available and they can be distracted all the time. And I think this kind of nests into some of the other things we've talked about. Like to a certain extent, being able to sit still and read a book is part of the skill of sort of boredom. Like I don't have to have stimulation right now. Reading is one of kind of the, from a visual perspective, at least stimulating things that you can do, right? Words on a page. The way that I was mentioning earlier that, that nature sort of slowly, progressively unfolds or presents itself to you is something that requires some level of stillness. And so, I, you know, I think when my kids were growing up, what we just tried to say was, your boredom is not my job to solve, right? I used to say, my kids would say, I'm bored, and I would say, good, uh, create something. What do you wanna do? What do you wanna do with your boredom? And I have seen over and over again, the power of boredom because what happens is boredom is the wrong label to put on it. What it is is space. That's all it is. It is open space. And if we will resist the urge for ourselves and for our children to just immediately fill that space, it's an open space that things come alive in us. One of my kids, I mean, I loved it out of sort of boredom and not have anything to do. She loved school and teachers, and she created this entire imaginary classroom. She had a whiteboard in her room, and she would go up there, close the door. She would teach them. Concepts that she was learning in school on the whiteboard. She would call them down. She would send kids to the principal's office. I mean, these kids literally, like, there were different personalities and backgrounds and backstories. And, you know, just this really rich imagination that I thought was such a beautiful thing to see happen this creativity. And it just came out of I don't have anything to do. My 18 year old son is you know, incredibly smart, but he's also incredibly curious. And so out of boredom, he would just read random things. Like when he was like seven, he would buy atlases and he would study atlases. And so he just knows all this random information about geography and highways and the texture of different landscapes. And Because he had this open space in which he could explore. And that's ultimately what resisting the temptation as a parent to just entertain your kids or find something for them to do is what you're doing. What I would encourage parents with what you're actually doing there is you're just opening some space that they get to explore. And again, I'll tell you a formative interaction that I had back when I was working with high school students in a church context is that I I talked to a high school kid. Who was a pretty heavy drug user and he kind of opened up to me one day about why what he started with was smoking weed and then it kind of progressed from there into some other stuff and so we started talking about it and he said you know what when i was a kid growing up i was involved in so many things i never just sat at home alone or i never entertained myself and a lot of it was sports related. He said, I got into high school and I stopped playing sports and I stopped being involved in anything and I was just bored and I didn't know what to do with it. So I started smoking weed. And that was just like, I think one of my kids was maybe, my oldest was maybe like two years old when I heard that story. And I just said, okay, I'm not going to activity my kids to death. I want them to learn how to just be, right? How to just be without accomplishing anything. Without any demands, just sit and exist and have open space to fill that with. And so you mentioned this earlier, and I won't go back and rehash it all, but you constantly have to resist the pull as a parent to raise a resume and instead raise a person. That's what you're doing. Like you do have to have a long vision, right? that then you can so i'm gonna I'm gonna write sometime soon. Something that someone referred to me as parents need a distant mountain, which is a vision very far out into the future. That same way a a distant mountain sort of rises above the landscape and lets you know you're going in the right direction. A very big distant vision for your children that allows you to then back into what to do today. For me, that point in the future, for whatever reason, was 40 right? It was like, who do I want my kids to be when they're 40? Well, that helps me decide how to engage with them when they're four. And so that's been probably one of the most helpful things for me as a parent.
0: And unfortunately, boredom is seen as a place of discomfort that needs to be alleviated as soon as possible. What do students as they become adolescents and have access to other things, they tend to alleviate discomfort right now with their phones and by being on social media or they alleviate that discomfort with drugs and alcohol so you're actually setting your kids up for resilience and you're setting them up to not fall victim to all sorts of addictions because they will be okay with just sitting with the discomfort of not knowing what's next. You also made this fantastic point, and I I think as a professor I can say that this bears itself out on the college campus, is that boredom is the birthplace of imagination and creativity. You need the stillness and inactivity to think well. I mean, some of the best thinking that people do is when they go on walks, right, when they're just sort of not engaged, it's when you're disengaged, that's when something pops up, right? So when you're in the shower, there's there's good data on this. When you're in the shower is when your best ideas come because your brain is actually disengaged. So we actually need that for creativity, for innovation, and for problem solving. I, I would say if you want your kids to be the kind of people who problem solve you need to put them in positions where they sit with boredom. They sit in the stillness of that space or their brains can begin to process all the data points that they've received so they can arrive at solutions.
1: That's right. And I have to remind myself of this, that productivity is not a virtue. And so we want to instill like genuine, true values in our children. Every parent wants to. And doing stuff doesn't create that. So anyway, so yes, I think that's a really helpful thing and probably more relevant and real world for parents today. And just to be clear, I don't want to give the wrong impression. These are all things that we did and continue to struggle with, my wife and I, managing all these things today. My two kids that are out of the house, I don't really have much control over how much time they spend on their phones. The two that are in the house man we live in an age where i have to tell them that when we're talking they can't have headphones in and things like that it's like an actual appendage that's just growing from their ear is an airpod so we're managing all of this stuff and trying to navigate it very like real-time live fire right now
0: that's fantastic the next one that you talk about is the me first fight you said make your kids go last not every time for everything but enough to remember that the world does not revolve around them. If left on their own, most kids will elevate themselves above all others, first in line, right? Everything's about me. Everything's about me. Everything's about me. Every transaction, every, every opportunity, every rumor walk in, everything that I do is always about me. And you're saying, no, nope, make the kids go last. And it's important to know that that the world does not revolve around them. And there's a challenge there because I think our culture is so youth focus and so child-focused, that even the family becomes about the kids as opposed to about the marriage. I mean, that would be actually another podcast discussion that we could most certainly have. But you say, hey, the kids need to know that the world and family life and everything does not revolve around them. What happened that made that, that stand out? Was there anything in particular?
1: I'll tell you what happened is I had a kid and uh, then I had another kid, and then I had another kid, and I had another kid, and I just noticed this little pattern in their hearts and in mine, which is that I'm the most important person in the world. And that's really destructive to be allowed to live your life like you're the only person who matters. Because A, that's obviously not true for a multitude of reasons. But B, again, we're thinking long term, how does that work in a marriage? How does that work when they're parents? How does that work at work in their career, right, to understand or have a core understanding that I sort of get what I want, when I want it, the way I want it. And so just finding subtle ways to help your children take a step back. And I think for me, I was challenged by someone who said, you know, as a father, intentionally take the lowest seat. And the idea being like, model going last, model serving, model doing the crappy jobs that nobody wants to do. Show your children that you don't come first. And, you know, there used to be a culture. I don't know if this exists anymore. I still feel sometimes the temptation to it is kind of like the, by God, this is my house and I'm the man of this house and things are going to be the way that I want them. And to a certain extent, I, I had some of that modeled to me growing up. And I remember as a kid thinking, man, I can't wait till I'm dad and I get to have everything my way, man. I hate to break it to everybody, but when you're a parent, the last thing that you ever get is anything your way, the way that you want it, right? Cause you got a bunch of little terrorists living in your home who are holding you hostage all the time with some sort of demand. And if you don't meet it, there's going to be consequences. And so you're always compromising what you want to give them what they want and to bring some sort of peace. And so you know, I think what I just started seeing in my kids, and actually, interestingly, this works both ways because I have one child who would always choose to go last. And I also want to elevate him sometimes to go first, to say, no, you go first this time. I want you to sort of have the honor and the experience of getting it exactly the way that you want it, right? But then I also want to balance that for everyone else to say, hey, listen, It's not going to be the way that you want it this time. And so there's kind of this implicit give and take involved in that, that actually helps you develop skills to navigate difficult situations in your life, to be able to, obviously, you want your kids to be able to be servants of other people, see their responsibility in that. But from on like just a very practical level, you do a lot of negotiating, giving and taking in life in order to have good relationships, maintain a friendship, have a marriage, build a career, and so just learning how to tamper down that drive, that me, 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 me drive that we all have. And so even as an adult, that's not gone in me. And I still have to, in certain situations, say, I'm going to go last this time. I need that. I need to be reminded that the world does not revolve around me.
0: That's really setting them up for great relationships later on with friendships, particularly in their marriages, particularly also as employees working on a team, being a leader Just sort of pushing that to the side that this is not about me. And that's very un-American by the way, the American way to say, no, it is about me. I have to get mine because it's a sort of, Zero-sum game, right? If I don't get mine, I lose. And I think what you're raising your kids to, to see is that, no, if the world is not about you, everybody does better. You do better. Other people do better. Like, we all win when we're all making it about each other, which is really, really helpful and unusual. I mean, you're, you're kind of raising unicorns here in, the, in that sense.
1: Well, and also, too, there's also the question of, like, so what are the consequences, right, of not getting it? The reality is there's none. And I think also, too, helping to dispel that sense of like, okay, an hour from now, the fact that I didn't get the piece of cake that I wanted is lost. I don't care. It's gone. I've moved on to something else. And that's actually another skill that you want your kids to develop and that you want to practice is the ability to put things in their proper place, right? How big of a deal is this? And the skill of reacting appropriately in line with the gravity of what's happened is something that we all have to learn, especially in a culture that is inviting us to overreact to everything. And that's sort of the thing of the day, right? So so there's that other benefit to that is just that skill of realizing I really wanted that big piece of cake. I got the small one but you know what? It had no real consequence in my life. It's not a big deal. And then and then I, I can move on. And, I, and I, I just think as a parent, a lot of this stuff, your kids probably aren't going to ever call you and say, thanks for making me not get the biggest piece of cake sometimes because I learned how to not take things too seriously. It's not that. It's the muscle memory of just the things that are subtly being built in their worldview and in their view of themselves
0: you're turning them into really virtuous human beings by putting them in these positions. You're you're also parenting for the long haul as well. Number seven here, which I think is, is, is vital. I cannot tell you the number of students I've talked to over the, the 20 or so years I've been doing this work who have not had any awkward conversations with their parents. Their parents just don't talk about tough things with them. And you say, To have the awkward conversation, right? to fight for that, to make your kids have uncomfortable conversations with you. As kids get older, the things you need to talk about with them get more difficult for both of you. And then you give a pretty long list of, of what some of those awkward conversations should be. How have, have you had to you and your wife had to deal with with this as a as a value, something worth worth fighting for? And and why do you think it's important?
1: It's all very sloppy, right? I, I think that's the thing that's good about it for you as a parent is like this is something that's very difficult to get, right? I had this advantage I've mentioned several times, right? I spent like a decade working with middle school and high school students. So when my kids got into middle school and high school age, where a lot of parents are starting to really struggle with talking to their kids and connecting them with their kids. I actually kind of felt like that was when I was finally, I finally knew what to do. So for me, I had a, a little bit of a leg up in those years. But even with that head start, like I had a running head start, I remember when my oldest kids got boyfriend, girlfriend for the first time and having conversations with them about dating and. And asking my son is took so much guts for me to say, I would like permission to ask you periodically about your physical relationship with your girlfriend. Would that be okay? And him saying, uh, yeah, I guess so. Right. But, you, you know, so I think that was super weird for me to do. I'm sure that was super weird for him but what it did was open the door for us to have better conversations and to set a tone for we're going to engage on a different level here now and i think i think especially as your kids get older the critical piece of that that i've just i've learned over the course of time is that permission is a really powerful tool you know so to say to your kids hey i would like to have a conversation with you that might be a little bit intense about Can we have that conversation? Would that be okay? Your kids are going to say yes. But the important thing is your kids said yes. So like one of the things I imagine for myself, especially as my sons have gotten older, is that I have two modes. I've got dude mode and dad mode. I know this is kind of cheesy, but like the vast majority of the time, like, man, I love those guys. Like, I mean, all the time I love them, but I just mean I'm operating out of like, I mean, these are just guys I like to hang out with. Like, I'm so fortunate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're fun to hang out with.
1: Yeah, I just love hanging out with them and we're just we're goofing around, watching football game on TV, driving around, going someplace, eating somewhere. And it's just fun to be with them. And then there's some times where we need to I got to be a dad. We got to talk about stuff or I want to something came up and I want to kind of preach to them about it. And so what I just started doing was saying, hey, would you allow me to just be a dad for two minutes? You know, and they say, yeah, sure. I mean they almost always do yeah okay what and then i can say hey this life principle is really important and here's why it's important and you know and then the tone of our whole relationship isn't like one of the things i was really sensitive to here is that part of my story growing up is i always felt nervous anytime i was alone with my dad about what was going to happen right was he going to correct me about something was he going to preach to me about something was it just going to be awkward and silent? Like I had anxiety when I was with him. I won't even assign fault to it. It just sort of was something that was. And so I wanted it to be comfortable for my kids to be alone with me. And so I knew that meant that while I wanted to be able to engage with them in difficult conversations, I couldn't do that all the time. And those couldn't be the only conversations that we were having, right? And so I think the, the larger point here about this is... If you're not having these conversations with your kids, who is? And that question should terrify every parent because in most cases, one of two things is happening. Either they're not talking about these things with anybody, which means they're feeling isolated, afraid, locked up, something like that. Or the people that they're having these conversations with are not telling them Anything that you would support, endorse, or be glad for them to heed from an advice perspective, right? And so just a simple practical matter to me is I want to be a voice into those things with my kids and not cede that responsibility to someone else.
0: Yeah, to to give it over to YouTube. That's right. Or to give it over to some idiot on TikTok or some real on on instagram i mean they're going to seek the answers to big questions and when i was in churches and also when i taught high school i'd say parents listen you want to be the one to address these issues with your children you don't want your kids to talk about this stuff with anybody else right mm-hmm. now they can seek other advice as well I'm, I'm not saying don't talk to pastors or whatever but you want the sort of primary base point place to sort of have this discussion to be with with you i mean you want this conversation to originate you know i was talking to my dad about this and then he said blah 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 what do you think something like that but you want to be having these conversations and i i I was teaching a class once about some of these issues and the the biggest lament in the class at one semester and a couple students said it and there was this kind of long awkward pause and they were all like yep 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 And it was this, that that our parents did not have those awkward conversations with us over time, especially issues regarding like sex and dating and relationships, how their bodies work, how their bodies were developing. For a lot of parents, they have the one conversation, the talk, and then they never bring it up again. And I would tell parents really clearly, let me tell you something about 2023. Right, This is kind of how, how the world is working today. If you don't have these ongoing, awkward conversations with your children throughout the entirety of their adolescence, and I would say college and in their in their 20s, you are sending them as sheep out to be slaughtered. I mean, you, you are sending them to wolves if you aren't having those awkward conversations because they actually need them to survive and navigate, navigate all the crap that's coming at them. Yep. It's a defensive mechanism, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll say two things that I found to be helpful. And then I'll tell you a funny story. One thing that I found to be helpful, I already mentioned is permission is a really powerful tool, especially if you have middle school or high school age kids Instead of just barging in and assuming you get to speak to this thing or force a conversation on them, I've found permission to be a really helpful tool. Would it be okay if we talked about? Then the other thing I would just really encourage parents with, this often gets difficult, is that as we begin to have those conversations, I think what happens most often is the fearful side of us takes over. And then we have some level of reaction that ranges from different spectrums of bad behavior One is just becoming sort of giving a monologue to our kids all the way to like, now that I know this, I'm going to punish you for sharing this information with me. I'm freaking out. Give me your phone, you know, all that kind of stuff. And none of those are good. So, so I think trying to suppress that. And so ask for permission and then ask questions, ask your kids what they think about, right? How are you So your kid's dating somebody for the first time. How are you managing being in a dating relationship and the physical side of that? Like, how's that been for you? And just see what happens in an engaged conversation. That's not, let me give you my parenting advice, right? The ancillary effect there is that you're also helping your kids, again, process through, make decisions, wrestle with issues, come to their own conclusions, all these things that all of us want them to be able to do. And then well meaning, loving parents will short circuit that by just sort of over functioning in some of those critical moments. So the other thing I would just encourage people with is sometimes when you have those conversations, those awkward conversations, it creates the greatest memory. So one of my sons, what we decided to do, we had lots of kind of cuss and discuss debate between my wife and I deciding, and we kind of landed on about eight years old was the time that we were going to have like the basic sex conversation with our kids. More just like a mechanics of here's what it is and how it works a little bit. Very general. So, one of my sons is eight years old, and I pull him aside into the room and said, Hey, I was wondering if we could have a little conversation. Uh, it might get a little weird for you, a little awkward. He said, Okay. He's looking at me like really intently. And I said, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about sex. I said, Would that be okay if we talked a little bit about sex? And he looked at me and very seriously said, Well, Dad, I'm going to be a doctor. I probably need to know about this stuff. Okay. So then I gave him kind of a basic explanation, like a one sentence, like here's what sex is. And the kid looks at me for about three to five seconds of sort of a blank stare and then explodes laughing, like rolling on the couch, tears streaming from his eyes. And all of a sudden he and I are both like he's in my arms and we're both rolling on the floor of the room, crying, laughing, just like having this just deep moment of it's one of my literally like favorite, most rich memories with that kid of all the years that we've had. And it came out of, hey, we're going to have one of these awkward conversations. So there can be just like some really beautiful, fun memories that come out of that as well
0: and it seems to be the case also that that when you establish that this uh, this is a place to have those awkward conversations that if you have questions later you can come back if you want to talk about these things later you can come back i'm going to open this door we're going to open up this lane here and at any time you want to ladle in for questions and it doesn't need to be about sex. It could be about sex, it could be about finances, mm-hmm. it could be about right. future questions, career, how to handle conflict with your friends, how to handle conflict with your teachers. Like whatever issue is, is the pressure point, it sort of opens up space for that.
1: Can I add one thing to just to that? Just this has been a, a more recent thing I processed through just as a word of encouragement. If parents are still watching this, we would be talking for a long time. But as a word of encouragement, be thoughtful and careful as a parent about how strongly and casually you state your opinion about issues just around the house. Because you will unintentionally create a barrier for your child to come and talk to you about that. So, for example, if you around the dinner table are saying, well, Mary's daughter got pregnant and she's 16 and I just don't know. It's a terrible mess. I can't believe what people are doing, what's happening with their kids. Just as an example, I am somebody who just talks. I'm somebody with strong opinions. I'm somebody who doesn't always think about what I'm saying. And I've figured out over the course of time that my kids won't come and talk to me about something because they think I already they already know my opinion or position or the type of reaction they're going to get from me because they've inferred it from me just being pretty hard with my opinions about other things that I've verbalized. So just something to be aware of as a parent.
0: That's really, really rich. This last item that you mentioned that's worth fighting for with your kids is the limitation fight. You say, make your kids live within limits. Learn to live within limits is a valuable life skill. In fact, many adult problems arise from an inability to accept them. Mm. Give us some wisdom on why it's, well, you found that advantageous for your kids to experience limitation.
1: So 90% of the problems that I have in life are because I don't believe that limitations are good, right? I struggle to accept that I have physical limitations, right? I've got financial limitations. I've got relational limitations. So I'm swimming in limitations and limitations are a gift, right? They create this space for us to operate in. They remind us that we are finite and frail. They help refocus us on what's important. They help communicate to us when things have gotten out of whack or out of line in our lives is almost always because we've ignored a limitation. So again, like all of these things, what you want to do is just begin to help your kids understand that they are limited. And you do this in really simple ways, like they don't get to eat whatever they want whenever they want it, right? There's limitations on that. There's limitations on when they can watch TV or when they need to go to bed. So even some basic schedule things that you put in place for your kids all create this environment of, hey, we're all limited. And so it's up to us not to revolt against our limitations, but to embrace them and live in light of them, not to, you know, I know there's all this talk in the world today about busting through your limits and don't, you know, all this social media jazz, but at the end of the day, we all require sleep. That is a reminder that God gave us that we are limited. None of us can just go, right? So that one's, you know, relatively simple for me. I think learning how to live within limitations is how you become an adult who stays away from all sorts of trouble. And part of what you're learning through living in limitations is this is good for me, this is bad for me. And my definition of maturity, a few years ago I was wrestling with like, am I mature? And in many ways I'm not. I still have many immature places in me. But I was asking the question, what does mature mean? And the answer that I came up with is that maturity is the ability to discern the difference between what is and is not good for you and consistently choose the good. And so that became something for me that I want to help my kids understand that is encapsulated in understanding limitations right? So I want them to consistently choose that I need some vegetables in my life and not just sugar. That's good for me. I need that. And it's also a limitation in our bodies. So that one's relatively simple, but incredibly powerful.
0: I think that one also teaches two things. One, self-control, which is absolutely vital for maturity and thriving. It, It also teaches delayed gratification, and if you can raise kids who both value and have the the attributes of self-control and and delayed gratification they will make good decisions they will make wise decisions and so introducing them to the reality of limitations is really setting them up for all sorts of success in in their life
1: and you want them to be able to think long term right longer term thinking. That's like higher order thinking. And I'm telling you that comes from having limitations because what you do in limitate when you have a limitation is that you're making decisions about how do you live within that, right? Just a simple thing like a curfew, right? There's two different things I want to do tonight, but I have to be home by this time. So which one am I going to choose? And then the process of going through deciding which one of those do I want to choose begins to tie into these higher level questions of What's important to me? How do I want to spend my time? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to be with? And so I think that's incredibly powerful. And I I will say that's something that I've been just to encourage parents with. That is something that does begin to really show itself as your kids start to go out of the house and start to step out into the world is that ability to think beyond right now. And also, too, the other thing that's really helpful is and my two kids are in college, have both demonstrated to me the ability to let a process work, work a process, and let it like my son who's playing college football. He knew when he came onto campus for Division One football, he wasn't going to walk in the first day and be a starter he knew there was going to be a process he was going to have to work out and he was going to start as a as a low level player and and put in effort every day and, and you know and so so being able to think in terms of there's a process here i've got to be faithful and follow that i think those all come out of understanding this world that has boundaries on it
0: David Morris, thank you so much for joining me today on the Anthony Bradley Show. This is a fantastic list of eight things. We are doing this again because for those of you who don't know, he is active on Twitter. You can find his handle at WDMorrisJR. And he does lots of these lists, really helpful lists of, of things and gets lots of lots of traction. This one particularly stood out to me because it's, it's it's probably pressing over a 100,000 engagements uh, right now. So America really was captivated by this and has been really helpful. I hope that this episode was helpful for you as it was for me. And for those of you who are parents, this is encouragement from someone who has not figured it all out, as he said. Uh, is and this is sort of on the fly lessons in the process by himself that he's bringing so david morris thank you so much for being on the
1: anthony bradley show thanks for having me it's been a great joy
0: ladies and gentlemen thank you for being a part of this episode and joining us today on the anthony bradley show we are immensely grateful for your continued support and unwavering dedication To our incredible Patreon community, your generosity and commitment have allowed us to bring thought-provoking discussions to the forefront. Your support enables us to amplify important voices and explore critical topics that shape our world. Thank you for being the backbone of this show. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to be a part of our community, we invite you to like, subscribe, and share. The Anthony Bradley Show. Please take a moment to leave a review and share your thoughts. We value your feedback and are always striving to deliver content that resonates with you. Once again, thank you for joining us. And together, let's keep the conversation going, expanding minds and making a positive impact in our world. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Anthony Bradley Show from Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Acton Institute and Kuiper College.